I'm Lara Land, somatic coach and yoga teacher trainer, and this is the Beyond Trauma podcast. What a couple of years we have had. The challenges continue to grow, and more and more of us are experiencing some level of traumatic stress. My commitment here is to bring you the most up-to-date insights on exactly how trauma affects our mind-body-spirit system and how we can work with our bodies to soften its impacts. You will be hearing from trauma survivors and researchers, and together, we are going to incorporate what they have to teach us to heal ourselves and promote the well-being of all those around us. Here we go. It's out! The Essential Guide to Trauma-Sensitive Yoga is now available everywhere books are sold. This is the book for every yoga teacher, studio, and practitioner who wants to incorporate an inclusive practice to yoga. It's available on my website, laraland.us, and everywhere books are sold. If you're loving this podcast, you are going to love this book. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Beyond Trauma podcast. Today, we are discussing a challenging topic, a very unexpected death, an unexpected way. Actually, the woman I'm speaking to today, she, her husband was an officer, so she did live with some uncertainty and the knowledge that, you know, he could perhaps not come home one night, that sort of thing. But the way in which he was tragically lost is very unexpected. And The loss of her husband as the man that he was was immediate, but his incapacitated state, his vegetative state, lasted quite a while, leaving her in a lot of ambiguity. I was really touched by her story for a number of reasons. Some of you may know my father was very ill. I think it's coming on six years, might be longer. Time is definitely very strange these days. I think it's longer than that, seven years where he was in a doctor-induced coma, and there was this period, this four-week period, where we just really didn't know um, if he was going to make it. And it really stops your life, and you go into a very strange state. You're managing the crisis, and you're kind of numb, you're outside of it. And, you know, in my case, my father recovered, but that always stuck with me. Um, that zone that I was in. My guest today, Whitney Lynn Allen, she talks a lot about that zone and she has transformed this loss in her life. She's an attorney. She's no longer practicing because she took this opportunity to change her life. She became a grief educator and a coach uh, for folks who are dealing with grief. She wrote a book about her loss and her grief and Her story is very inspiring. I wanted to have her on, especially because there's a number of women in my life right now who have lost their partners recently. Some of you might know Hala Corey, who was the first guest on this episode, lost her husband um, quite suddenly in sleep. And there are a number of others. And um, I've been thinking a lot about death. They have mentioned that I took an end of life doula certification. And I've been coaching along with my life coaching 
folks who are terminally ill and their families, and also coaching people who are not ill on the uncertainty of life. And how do we live in that reality of that uncertainty so that we live our best lives, right? Like not complaining or not putting something off that we want to do or just feeling into life knowing how short it is. This is the gift of uh, a sudden death, um, of a tragedy, but we don't have to wait for that tragedy in order to wake up, to wake up to the shortness of this life. And I have been in a space of, uh, I'll say awakening, and I've been wanting to share that with others. So I have a course coming up. It's called Facing Death to Ignite Your Life. And it is a workshop on love, impermanence, bravery, and bliss coming up Wednesday, September 13th to October 4th. And this is not for folks with an end of life diagnosis, but instead for folks who want to live, live as if they're going to die tomorrow. And we'll be doing guided visualizations and sharing circles and a lot of psychoeducation around how to waken up to impermanence and live differently. It'll make you care for your life more and those in it. And I'll also say that this work we are going to do on my Costa Rica trip, more in-depth, Costa Rica Clarity Retreat, coming up February 3rd to 9th. I hope you will come with me to Costa Rica. This is a time to go deep, to get away from the patterns, maybe the person that you are when you're stuck in the same place with the same people. And again, to figure out who you really are meant to be. Go deep and ask yourself the big questions while you're still here. So I hope you'll join me on one of those adventures and excited that you're joining me today. Again, my guest is Whitney Lynn Allen. She is a grief educator and coach. Her life was changed dramatically on October 14th, 2021, which you will hear about. She became a widow and she has used her story to inspire others to live again, to find their magic, to find their meaning, um, and to move through despair. And I think we all have a lot to learn from her experience. So take a listen and I hope you enjoy. Here we go. Welcome, Whitney. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Great to meet you. I've been um, following your story and uh, watching you on your social media. And um, I was lucky enough to read your beautiful heart-wrenching book. So um, lots to talk about. Yes, thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, if we might just start with your story to give people context, you know, who don't know who you are, of who you are and, you know, why we're having you on today. Sure. So for anyone that does not know me, my name is Whitney Lynn Allen. I guess I have to start October of 2021 is really kind of like what brought me to the place in my life today. So beginning of October, my husband, Ryan, he was a canine officer at Hapro Police Department. I was pregnant with our second son. Our first son, Jackson, was three years old. I was working as a medical malpractice defense attorney, very normal life, like everyday people, nothing exciting, but we were really happy. We were so excited 
to welcome our second son into our family that January. And things were going really well for us. Ryan was really hitting his stride as a canine officer. He started the unit at his police station and he was about three years in and really just starting to get well-recognized in the community for his work with his canine, Louie, and he loved it so much. So that was like a huge privilege for me to be able to watch him live out his, it was a childhood dream of his. And then on October 12th, 2021, we celebrated our eight-year wedding anniversary, just like any other normal day. And then two days later, Ryan got stung by a bee, had a very severe reaction, went into anaphylaxis, and then that caused him to go into cardiac arrest for more than 20 minutes, which then caused an anoxic brain injury. So that is an injury to the brain when you are deprived of oxygen. And that started a clock of a six-month ordeal of him in the ICU for eight weeks, and then an inpatient subacute a facility, which is a step down from an ICU, and then in and out of brain rehab in the hopes that we would be able to bring him out of this like coma state and a vegetative state that he was in after he was right out of the ICU where he was in official coma. And then he did submerge and he was in a vegetative state. So we were hoping that he would come out of that and be able to heal his brain. And that was not a reality. And unfortunately, we had to put him on hospice because he was not going to recover. And he'd always be in that state until he passed away from natural causes. So we knew that he did not want to live like that. So we put him on hospice. And that means in that state, withdrawing all life-sustaining care, so hydration and the food that he was getting, which he couldn't eat anything. So that he was getting food through a G-tube in his stomach. So withdrawing all of that and letting him die naturally from dehydration and your body kind of shuts down at that point. And he passed away on April 7th, 2022. And then, so that's kind of the backstory. And then, you know, that kind of starts another chapter of my life after he died. Yeah, I bet. Um, a big life change for you. You, you get married and start a family. Mm-hmm. There's a vision of what a future is going to look like. And of course, there's room for surprise and shifts in that future. But when something like this happens, um, there's not just the loss of the person, but the loss of that whole dream, that whole vision. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And then making that decision, I wonder, I love how you said that, you know, you knew what he would have wanted. I'm curious, was that something that he had written down for you or that you knew from his personality? So it wasn't something that like we had specifically talked about per se. Ryan always liked to be very prepared. So like in terms of he like, (laughs) he just made sure like we were taken care of because he was a police officer. So he always believed like there was a, a high probability that he may be injured on the job or even killed on the job. And he had that he didn't live in this state where he didn't think anything could happen to him. He would have had no idea like that what happened to him would, but he was prepared for for that possibility because of his work. So 
we had those kind of conversations, not exactly, you know, what would you want if you were in a coma? So that was more like just knowing who Ryan was as a person and he would not want to just be in a hospital bed. That's not really living. You're breathing, but you're not living. Yeah. Yeah. And yet so many people hold, you know, hold on and it's so hard to make that decision. That's, that's why it's so helpful to have those conversations. In my work as an end-of-life doula, that's, that's part of what we do, is helping people so that the family doesn't have to decide for themselves. I mean, you were very strong to be able to make that decision and know what he would want. Mm-hmm. It sounds like that probably came out of a lot of conversations that the two of you had and really just knowing him so well. Yeah, definitely. Just the, out of knowing the person that he was and also knowing what he would have wanted for me and his boys. And that was not him being in a nursing home because that Mm -hmm. that's what would have happened or him coming home and needing 24 seven care and the expense of that in time and energy in money is not something Ryan would have wanted for his family. Yeah. It seems like you had to make a lot of decisions, you know, from the moment of the the bee sting all, you know, through the time that he was getting care. There's so many decisions that have to be made. And you go into a bit of like a kind of a tunnel vision and um, like a crisis management. Can you describe what that felt like and what that period was like? Yeah, I think it's exactly how you describe it. Like it's, it's really tunnel vision, but it's so weird um, when you're in, because you're in survival and your brain literally, like I found out after when I'm trying to research, like what really happened to me, like my brain in this trauma and fight or flight mode, like I was really interested in finding out like what, what happens and like why I was the way that I was. And your brain, it goes from the like reasonable cognitive part of your brain where you reason things and you're able to be rational and think through emotions and be like more of like an adult. And, you know, and then it's kind of you switch into complete survival mode where that shuts off or that goes in like to the background and then your primal, very instinctual in like part of the brain is, is an overdrive. And that's the like survival mode. And there's like no rationality there. It's literally just, you need to get things done. This is what you have to decide. This is what you have to do. And you become like almost numb, like you numb out because your brain and your body protects you from basically dying from the pain because that's how painful it is. And it's, it protects you from basically dying from that much like agony because emotion like the amount of emotional turmoil that you go through when right after that happens is so intense that I, I just don't know how we would survive it if our body and brains weren't meant to numb us out. And then, you know, when you're coming out of that, that's another whole whole different thing. But it's also kind of like you're looking at yourself from like either you're watching a movie of yourself or you're watching the story and what's unfolding from like a bird's eye view. And it it doesn't feel like you're in your body. And that's like this association, which a lot of people, which happens to a lot of people in this type of trauma situation. Yeah. You described that really well, being outside yourself and watching it and 
how your body was protecting you, probably even more so being that you were pregnant. And I, but I also wonder, yeah. yeah. And I wonder, I know in your book, you shared a little bit about kind of like childhood trauma almost, or, you know, some, some dynamics with your mom that weren't really healthy. And I wonder if, you know, that had an impact on how you were surviving during this time. Do you think about that or like the way you were raised and and those influences on that moment or even your role as a lawyer, as like a defense lawyer? Do you think those came into play? Yeah, I don't know. Um, that's so hard to say because like my childhood, like my parents didn't become, like I didn't realize some of the toxic things that were happening in my family until later on in life. And not to say I didn't have a good childhood per se, there was a lot of dysfunction because my parents were, had a very tumultuous like relationship and there's a lot of fighting and stuff. So me, like maybe in the sense that I, and I was the oldest sibling. So it's like that protectiveness. And I definitely felt that with like the, how protective I was of Ryan. And then when I realized, you know, the family situation about more than a little bit more than a decade ago is when I started therapy and counseling and looking into those like inner wounds from my childhood. And I think all of that really helped me in the process because of the boundaries that I had to set. Because when you're in a crisis and you're, a tragedy has happened and you're, you're in the center, I feel like you either are able to make very strict boundaries or you kind of just completely collapse and then they all fall down. And for me, I think I went into more of protective mode and like I almost like reinforced the boundaries and made new ones because of my past. Can you share some of those boundaries that you talked about creating a kind of a bubble, a trauma bubble and protecting yourself during that time? Um, Maybe some of those boundary ideas could be helpful for folks going through that. Yeah. When people, when something really bad happens, unfortunately, it's like trauma porn. Like people are so drawn to the trauma because they're not in it, right? Like they're, they want to have a front row seat to the trauma without like experiencing it themselves. Like they don't want the trauma for them, but they want a front row seat to another person's trauma. You'll see people like come out of the woodwork and try to be like, oh, well, when this happened with me, blah, 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 and, and try to like compare, which, which I learned after, you know, in my, I'm a, grief, a certified grief coach, like what that's called. And it's, you know, you're high, you're grief hijacking when you do that to somebody. And you really shouldn't compare someone else's tragedy unless there's consent in all things, because it's not helpful in a lot of cases. But some of the boundaries that I, I put in place were, you know, I didn't let just anyone come and visit Ryan. There were people that I didn't allow to come and visit him because I wasn't comfortable or I knew Ryan wouldn't want them to visit him. And that can be, you know, for me, it wasn't difficult because I had practiced and I just didn't care at that point, even less so. But I think for some people in crisis, it's difficult because you still want to maintain social graces. But for me, I think, all my social graces kind of went out the window during that time. And I didn't really care who I upset as long as I was protecting what Ryan would have wanted and his needs and also our family's needs. You don't have to have everybody to the hospital if that's like your situation, like it was with me. And you don't have to have everybody 
come to hospice, like in our situation, like there were people like my mom, I did not allow to come to hospice because I felt like that was a privilege and one that she had not earned. And, you know, she wasn't the, she wasn't the only one like that. I was like, I I said that maybe that wouldn't be a good idea. Although the spotlight was on her because of the situation that happened and she came unannounced, there were people that I did say, I I don't think I would want them there. Mm. Yeah. Good for you for protecting your family and yourself at the time. Who were the people and, and what were the resources that you that you did lean on during that time to, to help you and like, remember to eat and try to sleep and those things that, you know, get lost when you're going through something like this. Yeah. I I mean, my mother-in-law and sister-in-law and brother-in-law were my main sources of support during that time. And we were all there. We were close before Ryan's accident. And then we really kind of banded together after and, We were kind of just like, it was like a messed up kind of like crisis team. I don't know. I don't even know like the best word for it, but it was like, we knew we had to schedule people coming, you know, after I had the baby Leo, we had to schedule like going to the hospital and then bringing Leo and then feeding him. Like I had to feed him and like we were in the car in and out. And it was also during like there were COVID restrictions. So we had to kind of schedule around that as well, which was, you know, a complete nightmare. So there was a lot of moving parts and we, we, we had like a calendar and like a to-do list and we're like, these are the people that are visiting today. And it was just like, we coordinated all these things together because, you know, there are logistics around a tragedy. It's not just like the emotional factual parts it's like there needs to be things that get done and appointments and meetings upon meetings with doctors and it's just it's overwhelming yeah they were logistically my support emotionally my support pretty much like just my rocks during that time and did you find that you were on the same page about you know which measures to take or did that come into a little bit of conflict how did you work that out There was no, there was no conflict. You know, I obviously am Ryan's wife. I was Ryan's wife. So I ultimately knew like it was my decision, but like, I would say, this is what I think Ryan would want. This is what I want. And like, I don't think that there was any big decisions that we didn't all really agree on. No, that's very, very good. And very lucky. So I know sometimes a family member can, um, you know, get in the way of making a decision like that. That can be really hard. Yeah. 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 I am. I'm grateful that we didn't, I didn't have to go through that as well. So I know during that time you're in crisis mode and not really feeling everything. Was there a point when it hit you? Was it when you decided to put him on hospice or after your husband's death, when you started to feel the feelings and the processing? Yeah. Obviously, right after is like, that was probably the most painful, I would say, is like the right after that happens, because that's when your life changed, or that's when my life changed right after like an event like that happens. So you feel that, you know, that person that you've been with for X amount of years is no longer there. You know, in my situation, 
I only compare it because it's a little bit different if somebody has cancer, let's say, and, you know, it's not brain cancer, but it's something else like they can talk to you still, you know, up into a point and sometimes right up until the time that they die. And that was not the case with Ryan right after his accident. He could not communicate. He couldn't, he wasn't even really like, he wasn't conscious of what was going on. And it's so that's a very totally different experience and watching somebody be sick and die, but still being able to somewhat communicate with them. It's just all these things are hard, but that makes it uniquely hard because you lose the person twice, really. So there was processing, you know, in between his accident and then his death. And then obviously it's like a whole other thing after he dies. So it's like, yeah, there was processing after Ryan died too, that happens. And then you kind of start realizing exactly what you've just went through and you can start actually processing because when you're in survival, that's all there is. There's no finality yet. So when that finality does happen, that's when I was able to begin processing, okay, like what, what did I just go through? What does this mean for me? And what does it mean for my future? Yeah. 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 So there's there's different stages of the processing and like, it's very difficult. Was there somewhere along that time that you thought, you know, I want to, I might want to go into this to share this with other people that where along that timeline, did you decide that you might want to become a a specialist in grief and, and share your story like this? That definitely happened after Ryan died, you know, while Ryan was in the hospital and everything, I was sharing what was going on. And I did it because out of necessity, because there were so many people messaging me and texting me asking for updates. And I I wanted to be able to keep people up to date with what was going on and not speculate. And I wanted accurate information to get out to people that really cared. So I started sharing our journey on Facebook and the response was overwhelming. I mean, his story went completely viral. Like that was not the intention at all. It kind of just snowballed after he died because people just kept reaching out to me and saying how our story had impacted them, whether or not it's not the same situation, but adversities in people's lives. And it just got me thinking this is needed. These conversations are needed in this space. Like we don't talk about this enough. And after having gone what we went through, I'm like, I have never seen anybody talk about what this experience is even like, like doesn't even the books I've read, like on death or because I I'm not the type of person to, you know, I like to have those conversations. I like to have those conversations even before Ryan's accident. It wasn't something I avoided. But I never saw somebody talk about this type of experience in a way that really captured what it was. Do you think that's why people were relating to your posts? That it was there was something just really raw and honest about them and people were really um, captivated by that? Yeah, I think in today's society, we are so, we want transparency and authenticity. I think we're starved for it because, you know, everybody, we kind of like live behind like filters and we only show portions of our lives that we want to show. And when I say we, I meant you know, there's a portion of the internet that is curated, right? And we don't show like the really hard stuff and we only show the victories. And it's, 
you know, I, I think we do ourselves a disservice when we don't, we don't show the really vulnerable stuff. And then we don't talk about the really hard stuff in life, like grief and death and all the things that everybody goes through, but it's like, we're uncomfortable to talk about it because it's like, we'll catch it. It's like a disease or something. That's why so many people are so uncomfortable talking about these things. And then I realized once I started talking about it, like so many people just like flooded my inbox being like, thank you for being honest about this. Like I felt that way and I felt so alone and I don't want anybody to feel alone in in this experience because it's lonely enough, the experience in itself, let alone like the processing and all the feelings that you feel that you're like, what is wrong with me? Like, why do I feel this? Shouldn't I feel this? And I haven't seen this part of grief in movies or like the news or anything. It's like, we don't show what it's really like. Mm, Yeah. A lot of people are relating to your story and, and how vulnerably you've been sharing. In fact, one of the reasons I wanted to have you on is few of my friends, women have lost husbands recently. And I showed them your your profile, and they uh, they really were inspired by you know what you've had to say and and to share. And you have come such a far away. I mean, you've found love again, which I know many of them cannot imagine. And so I wonder if you want to share some of that journey, how you you know you got from going through this horrible tragedy to opening yourself up to find love again, let someone else in. Yeah. And it's just, it's just so weird how everything kind of unfolded because it's not just like when I met Ryan, it was like, I wasn't looking for anything. I was actually, when I met Ryan in 2012, I was like coming out of like another bad relationship and I was in law school and I wanted to like focus on myself and, um, and just have fun and, you know, focus on school. And then it's like, he came into my life and I, I say like, I couldn't ignore him. And that's kind of what happened with my boyfriend. Now it was just one of those things where, you know, I did open myself up to dating with no expectations other than I just didn't like wanted to change my state. I wanted to have fun. I wanted to just like, feel like I was living again, not necessarily to like find my next great love or like my next husband or whatever. Like that's just not, that was not the case. But when I met Anthony and my boyfriend, I felt like he was put in my path for a reason. And the timing is what it is. I feel like you don't really get to decide when somebody that is right for you comes into your life. And I don't think that being on like a grief healing journey is exclusive to finding love again. I think those two things can go side by side because I've done it. And like, I'll never be healed, right? So no matter when I I had decided to start dating again, I would still always be grieving. I would still always be healing. There would still always be things that that would be uncovered when I would start dating again. And those things got uncovered a little bit earlier than maybe I I even anticipated because, uh, you know, we started a relationship and that brings up a lot of things in grief when you're with somebody else and have a relationship with somebody else. Yeah. I know from at least one of my friends that she can't seem to feel like she can get there without feeling like a, a sense of cheating. I wonder if you have any thoughts or advice being grief counselor. Yeah, I would say, 
I would say you didn't, you didn't choose this path. Like you didn't choose for your husband, your partner to, to die. And now you get to decide what happens next. So, you know, you fulfill that death, like till death do we part. Right. And I think such a testament to Ryan and I's relationship is the fact that I knew I could find love again and that I wanted that again. And I think when people are in really strong relationships, it's like you crave that partnership with somebody, not just like the frivolous, like falling in love kind of feeling, but like that stability and security. And then, you know, your partner teaches you what you deserve when you're in a really healthy relationship. So, you know, there's kind of no nonsense. Like I knew what kind of person I would want to be with if I found that person and like the qualities that I was looking for, because Ryan treated me so well Mm. in our marriage. So it was like, when I found Anthony, it was, it was easy because I knew that he just encompassed so many great qualities that Ryan would respect. Beautiful. That's, That's very, very special. Yeah, so your life changed a lot, both with a, a new partnership and then with with your new career. Maybe you can share a little bit about, you know, the the, the road from being an attorney to coming into being a, a grief counselor and how you're able to help folks with this this new focus in your life. I had a very abrupt end to my law career because it was like I, like Ryan went into anaphylaxis like in the middle of the day like I was working from home and like I just put down my computer and that was it like I was done my legal career and it was just like I just could never go back because I feel like for me it would be almost like going back to who I was in the before and I'm just not the same person that I was and you know whether or not I go back to law in the future because I'm still a lawyer I'm just not practicing you know, I don't know what life will hold in the future, but right now it, it didn't feel right to go back. And I feel like I was so compelled and called to help others through this struggle that I went through and that I'm still going through. And I think there's really a lot of power in having lived an experience and then also helping people because, you know, a lot of therapists and counselors, like they're wonderful and I'm not taking away from like their expertise, but like a lot of them have not had lived the experience. So they're coming from a place of like they're reading about it, but they haven't embodied it and I've embodied it. So I think that's a really powerful place to come from when you're helping others through the same thing. Yeah. When you're seeing some of your clients, what are some of the maybe two or three of the main issues that that they're coming to you with? Yeah, it's, um, you know, grief, it's so unique, but there are a lot of similarities in what people struggle with. You know, one of them would be feeling guilt about moving forward and kind of like leaving their person behind in the past and their old life behind in the past. So that's one of them. Another one is, you know, family dynamics, relationships, friends, family, whatever, after something happens because if fundament something like a death of a spouse changes you fundamentally it changes your environment fundamentally it changes your world how you see the world fundamentally and then everybody else is the same 
And that can cause a lot of friction and tension and confusion. So it's like, where do we have to figure out where we fit in this world again? And who am I in this world? And so I help my clients a lot with relational dynamics after a loss and also being able to find out who they are in the aftermath and building a foundation for their new identity. And then a third one would be lack of motivation, lack of like dreaming again and having purpose again and feeling like alive again, because, you know, grieving and crisis and tragedy, it takes all of your energy. It takes all of your will. It takes out all of the magic that you had in your life, like all the shine. And I try to bring that back for people because like life is, is so magical. Like there's so much beauty in life, but grief does take that away until you're able to kind of cultivate that again. I noticed you use a lot of like working out. Is that one of your strategies to, Mm -hmm. to feel back engaged with life or to process some of your emotions? Yes. So, you know, one of the strategies that I use with my clients is finding that anchor like what their anchor is. And that's like something like an action you do every day, whether that's working out or meditation or journaling or singing, whatever that makes them feel grounded, makes them feel inspired. And like whatever happens in their day, they can go back to that and like still feel like they accomplished something. And also like when you are grieving, some people kind of shy away from doing things that might bring up pain. And I say, like, lean into that. Like if music, like sad music makes you cry and feel you miss your person, like lean into that. We shouldn't avoid the activities that make us feel in pain because that's how we process. That's how we move forward. That's how we get through it Mm -hmm. so that it's not so painful on the other side. And for me working out, like I mean, like in the beginning, like right after Ryan died, I really leaned in, into that because, you know, when you have movement, like we all need movement, emotion needs movement, grief needs movement, pain needs movement. It needs to go somewhere. It needs to come up. It needs to be expressed. And that's how I expressed and move my pain and my grief in order to heal or, you know, healing in a sense. So And now I just, I use it because it's like, it's a mental release and I feel so much better after a workout. I just feel like I can take on the day and that whatever, it's my anchor, whatever happens, I will be able to deal with it a lot better than I would have. Yeah, it's so true that there, people are afraid, yes, to step into their pain and feel, and and there's also a rush from society to get back to work, get back to routine. And so there's not a lot of space that's kind of allowed or cultivated unless we consciously do that, where we can give ourselves space to feel things. Yeah, especially as a mom of really young kids. So when Ryan died, my oldest was four and the baby was like three or four months old. So, you know, there isn't there isn't space or time to grieve. You need space and time to grieve. So when I dropped off my kids at daycare and had like an hour, hour and a half to physically push myself, 
like that was my grieving. And then the rest of the day, like I could be mom or I could, you know, call people and deal with like the business of death, which I call it. It was because the rest of the day did not belong to my grief. It belonged to the world. So I needed to dedicate that time to my grief in order to process it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's so important because you're right. There's all that stuff that has to be done. You probably still get mail sometimes or this or that because, uh, yeah. Yeah. And I, I also noticed that you, you shared recently that those flashbacks can still happen. And I thought that was really important to kind of normalize that there's still some trauma that's being processed and might always be there. Can you share a little bit about that? Yeah. When you go through trauma, it's, it's a part of you forever. Like that, that's never what I went through and the things I've seen, the things I've smelled, like all those images, like that's a part of me now. And that's kind of like the burden and also the privilege that I I have to bear because I think people that go through trauma, they have an appreciation for life that people that haven't Mm. just don't have because it's like, you've been on the brink, right? You've seen all these things that other people haven't seen and gone through. And um, it changes your perspective on like why we're here. But, you know, besides that, you're not going to forget, right? So how do we move forward in a way where the trauma doesn't control us and consume us and make us feel right back in that place where it happened? With my clients, I... I say like expression, like, again, you have to get it out, whether that's through writing or working out or talking about it, the memory, it needs to be apart from like the emotion of it and the trauma of it, like those need to be separate. Because if you every time you think of the trauma, you're back into where you were, then that's when that controls you. Mm. So the more the expression happens, the more that your your brain is able and your body is able to separate the really like the trauma feeling from like just what happened, like the memory. Because the memory's gonna be there. You can't get rid of the memory. So yes, flashbacks are are very common when you go through a trauma, but whether or not it like brings you to your knees and like you're having a straight on like panic attack that doesn't have to happen. It can just be like, oh, this is what I'm thinking about. And also what's helped me and what I I try to help my clients with is if you have a flashback, just saying to yourself, okay, this is what I'm having a flashback about. Like we're realizing like what is going on and we're saying, okay, like how do I feel about this right now? Analyzing like how it feels in our bodies if writing about how you feel about the flashback helps like do that, if not just like if you're in the car and it happens to be like, okay, how am I feeling in my body right now? And being able to kind of meditate on like that feeling in your body and the memory, it really does make it so much easier to separate like that trauma emotion from the memory. And the more that you do that, it's like you're just practicing the separation of the two things. Mm, that's such good advice. Thank you, Annie. Yeah, the, really the, taking us back to the body and what we're feeling right now. It's so important. Are there any other tips or words of advice that you'd want to share with some of our grieving uh, friends out there listening today? Yeah, a lot of things have been coming up in my my client sessions. And like one of them is, 
you're not regressing if you're feeling sad. I think the goal of grief isn't to never feel sad about what happened. Let yourself feel the emotions when they come up. Like even if you're having a a good few days and then, you know, one day you need to just like be in bed for a few hours or whatever you need. You're not regressing. It's like, this is the journey, right? This is life. It's never going to look the same, unfortunately. It's always going to be a little bit messier. And I think leaning into these emotions that you have will make the waves of grief be a little less intense and like shorter and not as painful. The more that we lean into the emotions rather than resist them. I think people suffer when they resist the emotions surrounding the grief because they think like I'm not getting better if I'm feeling this way. And that's just not, that's not the case. Mm, Yeah. And that it's not linear. Yeah. It's not linear. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's a, that's a really important uh, thing to keep in mind. Is there anything now having gone through this shock with your husband that we should know as far as safety with bees, should we be Is there any advocacy that you'd want for folks to know so that they wouldn't go through something like this? Yeah, honestly, I wish I wish I had like some educational thing, but Ryan did not have a known allergy to bees and he had been stung before. So this isn't a lesson in like carrying an EpiPen because he had no reason to. But like all I would say is like take any allergy that you know of very seriously you know, especially with kids, like I, not that my kids have any known allergies, but now I take any allergy very seriously. I have EpiPens in my bag, like my diaper bag, I go anywhere with just in case, because you just never know. And, you know, unfortunately, EpiPens aren't like, they're not distributed enough. I, I, I don't think, I think they should be more widely available because you just don't know when an allergic reaction is going to happen. And it can happen at any time in your life. I think it should kind of just be like Tylenol. Like we should all have them. I totally agree with that. Yeah. So if anything, you know, if a doctor hears this or if anyone hears this, like let's make it, let's make them cheaper and let's make them more available to especially parents for young kids because we never know like when that could happen. And it should just be something we carry around in our cars and our diaper bags and our our backpacks or whatever because there's, what's the harm in carrying them around? You know? Absolutely none. It's this wild that, yeah, that everyone just isn't given one <laughs> at birth, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Because you just never know. And and if anything, it's just no, like anything can happen at any time. Like these freak things happen in life and it's like we don't have control. Life is beautiful and life is precious. And I think we should all live like that. Mm. Yeah. Living with that knowledge that of the impermanence and really leaning into that. As you said, it's a gift and a lesson that you didn't want to necessarily have, but it's something that is awakening you to the beauty of life every day. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Well, we really appreciate it. You're sharing your story and your grief and turning it into something helpful for others. I know so many have been inspired by you and um, will continue to be, and you're helping so many folks If they want to learn more about you or how to work with you, where would you like to send people? Yeah, so I am pretty much everywhere at Whitney Lynn, L-Y-N, Allen. So I'm on Instagram, I'm on TikTok, I'm on the new Threads app. 
I'm on Facebook and LinkedIn. Um, and then if you are interested in grief coaching and want to schedule a, a complimentary call with me to learn more, you can go to my website and that's just WhitneyLynnAllen.com. And then obviously my book on Amazon is Running in Trauma Stilettos. Yes. And we will link that all in the show notes. Whitney, thank you so much for sharing your time and sharing your story. Uh, we really, really appreciate it. And I'm wishing you the best with your new life and your new love and your boys and that you continue to live with that urgency of life being short because it it's a hard lesson, but it, as you said, it is a, a, a beautiful gift to live knowing that each moment is precious. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. As we buzz around the busy world, it becomes clear there are billions of paths. As we buzz around the busy world, we will appear in other people's photographs. As we speed through the centuries, we will collide and the light will bend. We will be accidentally immortalized. Someone else is left